Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Saeed Hassan Raza. Uh, He's a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Medicine, Epidemiology, and Population Sciences at uh, Baylor College of Medicine. He's working, he's a, a CRPIT or CPRIT fellow. That means uh, Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Technos. So we're going to talk about uh, his work there. So, uh, Saeed, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. If you would tell me about your work. You know, there's a lot of uh, names flying about, but uh, I'm not sure uh, what it is that you're researching. Uh, yes. Uh, well, to start with, I'm an epidemiologist in and out. But uh, in order to reach to this stage where I am right now, I have gone through several stages of training and education. And this, is, this has been a long and tortuous journey, as I say to myself. And that actually started out with me growing in different, uh, li- growing, growing and living in different parts of the world. And that gave me a sort of sensitivity in regard for different cultures. So I went to a school in Libya. And then I got a medical degree from Pakistan, got the master's degree in epidemiology. I got a tenured faculty position back in Pakistan. And then I got a PhD from Canada and did research fellowships in France and Europe. And these were not done in one go, so as to say, but rather in different phases. So initially, I was all set to become a pediatrician. But I guess uh, the fate, it seemed, had other plans for me. And I ended up going to this well-known medical university that had a very nascent Master of Science program in epidemiology back in Pakistan. So to be honest, uh, I, I thought initially that I... Uh, I'm not going to like it. And uh, I didn't like it in, at first, uh, going, doing this, uh, all, all, everything about epidemiology. But then I fell in love with it when I started analyzing the data that I got from the field. Uh, I was doing these population-based studies and then writing the thesis, my master's thesis, and then publishing those results. And that was the point when I wholeheartedly felt that this is the career uh, that I'm going to pursue for the rest of my life. Well, for people that don't understand, what is epidemiology? Like, what, what did you do your master's thesis on? Well, uh, it, it, it's an interesting question in the sense that uh, I know of a very uh, a well-known surgeon who was uh, working with me uh, back in, in Pakistan. And he, uh, uh, he asked me, he honestly didn't know what epidemiology was. So... Frankly, that was a time in the end of 90s and, uh, and beginning of 2000, and nobody knew about, about what epidemiology was. Uh, so he came to me and asked me what it is. And even some of my friends uh, made joke in front of me that uh, what is epidemiology and this might not be a good investment for your future career. And I remember that during one of the dinner events, one, of, uh, one person came up to me and we started talking. He asked me, what is epidemiology? Uh, and then he asked me, what is the first thing that you do when you go to your office? And that was kind of like a, a, a kind of a 
question that I didn't know any answer for. And I said, I don't know, maybe have a cup of coffee. But then I told him that it's all about studying epidemics. Uh, and then I uh, told them that, have you heard about Ebola? Have you heard about Zika and Dengue? And, and then they would say, oh, uh, oh you, you're treating those diseases. And I said, I have to tell them, no, I don't treat those diseases. I research and present my findings so that we treat the population and think about public health overall. So in layman terms, I would tell them that we actually study the spread of those diseases, not treat them, but our informative insights and predictions might be helpful to those who are working on treatments. And sometimes the word epidemiology is mouthful for people back in Pakistan as well. My mother had difficulty in saying what it is, but since this pandemic, and she knows what I do, and is kind of like very proud of me now. <laughs> well, that's cool. okay. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. Everyone's talking about the coronavirus, COVID nineteen. It's I guess I'm you know I don't have the right to be, but I'm. I'm tired of it, but I guess we'll have to talk about it as well. Um, so, you know, you've been in this field for a long time. Are you seeing new things with COVID-19 besides the fact that it's a pandemic? Or is it in the epidemiology sense, is there anything new or novel or very different about what's going on now versus other ones? Uh, I think it's, um, it's uh, something that I expected. And a lot of us epidemiologists were expecting that this is, there is going to be something that is going to hit uh, on our faces. And uh, that is one of the reasons why when I studied epidemiology, and I say this to some of my uh, colleagues and those who are starting out as the students of epidemiology, that please try to learn something about infectious diseases as well. Because these days you have epidemiology, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a vocation that has kind of like uh, taking, uh, taken on a lot of fields. I mean, uh, you have a psychiatric epidemiologist these days. I mean, these are weird terminologies I, I know uh, because uh, epidemiology is epidemiology. But then you have cardiovascular people, you have uh, cancer epidemiologists as well. So uh, it, it's, it's, th this is what I say that uh, get some information about infectious disease, even if you are studying uh, epidemiology of some other disease, because that's how we started out uh, in traditional way. As I said, epidemiology is about epidemics. That's the first point where we should start from. Um, understanding the infectious diseases, understanding tropical diseases, all those infectious diseases that you find in tropics. And of course, uh, these... Uh, COVID uh, pandemic, I think uh, we are now like seeing a COVIDized research, which means that we are now so much invested and rightly so in COVID-19, but we need to think about other infectious diseases that are killing more people, uh, like malaria, like uh, Ebola and Zika and other infectious diseases as well, and tuberculosis and TB. So these are the infectious diseases that you have to take care of. But uh, uh, by COVIDized research, I mean that we are churning out a lot of uh, information that is sometimes useless, but there's, there's a lot of useful information as well. I mean, these are like heroes, like these virologists and these uh, physicians who are at forefront, uh, who are doing some work on, on COVID-19. And I think uh, epidemiologist is, uh, there are a lot of epidemiologists who are working on COVID-19 now. Uh, sure, yeah. And do you, you think that, um, I mean, we're, you know, 
supposedly we're learning a lot about it, et cetera. Do you think that this is going to do anything for tuberculosis, Zika, Ebola, and then the neglected tropical diseases, you know, like the, the, the parasitic worms that cause blindness and affect millions and millions of third world countries? Or do you think that COVID will just gobble up the spotlight and a lot of work will be done on it, but it's not going to change how other, you know, uh, infectious diseases are handled? Or do you think it'll change the whole field? Uh, I think uh, uh, we are rightly focused on COVID-19, but at the same time, I think uh, I know of a professor back in Canada, McGill, and this is this is the word that he is using. Uh, he, he coined this terminology, COVIDized research. And that's what he's saying, that it's stealing the spotlight out of those diseases that you rightly said, neglected tropical diseases. But again, these were neglected because we almost always thought that these diseases, these infections are not going to cross the borders and come to North America, US or Canada. But frankly, since this is so much of a globalized world that we are living in, I think uh, the, the, all these approaches have changed. Now you're focused on Ebola as well. I mean, uh, you might remember that uh, there was a patient with, uh, who came to U.S. and he was having the fever and, and so he was diagnosed with Ebola. So uh, I think that happened with uh, COVID-19. Uh, in fact, if we had uh, the task force for pandemic being established and that was in a workable condition, we might not had to face this kind of a problem uh, today. So far, what have been some of the good lessons learned about COVID-19 and about you know, epidemics in general, and which ones are we not seeming to learn yet, in your opinion, in your observation? So uh, you're saying which ones uh, we haven't learned about? No, I mean, what, you know, what, what things have we done right now with the COVID epidemic or the COVID pandemic? And but, but I'm sure there's things that we still are not learning. I think, uh, uh, yeah. What, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong right now? Yeah, I think that the, the right thing right now is uh, social distancing. That is for sure that we have to take care. Um, I think uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic and then recent incident in Minneapolis, uh, it's kind of like becoming very hard to follow uh, the social distancing uh, recommendation. But this is what it is. I mean, you have to keep distance and you have to bring the peak down. And uh, frankly, all this uh, uh, COVID-19 focus as it is important in itself, but it is actually stealing the limelight from several infectious diseases that should be controlled. And in fact, those infectious diseases, those neglected tropical diseases, we are seeing uh, a rise in those infections uh, because we have uh, stopped our attention and stopped our work uh, at some level on those infections. Yeah, I don't think people have realized. I realized not not because I'm a scientist, but because I talked to so many that science itself has been put on hold. A lot of scientists cannot get into their labs and aren't allowed to do any work. So yeah. for the past three months. A lot of science is not being done. It's only COVID-related at best. Yes. And I think, uh, uh, I mean, besides COVID-19, as an epidemiologist, uh, you try to study all those public health problems that are uh, important for your region. 
and especially those public health problems that are very important for low resource regions of the world. And I think I've been very lucky in having this opportunity to work on several population-based studies myself because I started working on neonatal infections uh, when I started out my uh, work as, a, as an epidemiologist. And in fact, my master thesis was on neonatal infections. And then I dabbled into the infections associated cancers such as human papillomavirus and cervical cancer, hepatitis and its association with hepatocellular carcinoma. And then uh, there's, I have an interest in helicobacter species and its association with GI cancers. So these are all uh, population-based studies that focused on some of the infections that I have been interested in, and I'm still working on those infections. What do you learn when you look at a whole population of people with a given infection that you don't learn? you know, about uh, non-infectious diseases, that, you know, chronic conditions. I mean, you operate in a very different world. So, you know, what are some of the learnings you have? Yeah, it is a different world. So uh, I, when I finished my uh, pediatric internship and uh, having been, uh, been exposed to so many preventable childhood infections, and when I started my graduate degree in epidemiology afterwards, I chose to work on neonatal tetanus. And which is now known as maternal and neonatal tetanus. And this is a fatal bacterial infection that has been eliminated from majority of the countries. And mind you, it's, it has been eliminated and not eradicated because there's a difference between these two terminologies, elimination versus eradication. We cannot eradicate something that is kind of like present everywhere. It's found in soil and environment. The spores that causes, the spores of uh, Clostridium tetani uh, the bacterium that causes uh, neonatal tetanus is ubiquitous. So uh, it's a vaccine preventable disease, neonatal tetanus, and it's caused by instability of motor system and autonomic nervous system. And it's caused by this highly potent neurotoxin that is produced by this bacteria, which we call as Clostridium tetani. And, uh, and by the way, uh, I mean, this is a vaccine preventable acute disease. And I can't emphasize more at this time that vaccines are so much important in having the herd immunity, especially. And all, all uh, mammals, especially that we see on land, uh, are affected by tetanus. And there's a variation in susceptibility of this disease. But historically, it has also been documented in primates, such as monkeys, apes, and chimpanzees. Uh, but in humans, this disease remains common in most of the low resource countries where it actually rep- represents a major prevention challenge. It is rare in many parts of the world. It is certainly rare in US, but it still presents a diagnostic and therapeutic challenge, especially a few years ago when we had a kid who was diagnosed with uh, tetanus and there was no history of vaccination for that child. So. It is contributing a lot to the uh, to uh, neonatal mortality, not only neonatal mortality, but also maternal mortality. And it has caused about like, uh, I think the recent estimates is that every year it causes more than 100,000 deaths. So uh, what happens in neonatal tetanus is that uh, the umbilical stump, uh, when you when the baby is delivered, that acts as an entry point for, uh, for the bacteria. And why? because of the unhygienic delivery and unhygienic court care practices after delivery, because a lot of women give birth at home and not at healthcare facilities in many of the low resource countries. 
And in maternal tetanus, infections can occur after miscarriages, abortion, and certainly after unclean and unhygienic delivery practice. And as I said, prevention is carried out through vaccination with tetanus toxoid. But since the sports of Clostridium tetani has so much widespread environment, eradication is kind of like impossible. So I believe that the global prevention strategies should be geared towards reaching the elimination of the disease. And there are so many countries that, uh, not so many countries, but there are certainly about uh, 14 countries. I have the list here, actually. There are 14 countries that have yet to achieve the elimination. And the goal has been changing a lot. So it was initially in 2005 was considered to be the elimination year in which we had this goal of eliminating this this, uh, infection. Then it became 2015. And now do you believe that Uh, Can you believe that it's 2020 and we still have to achieve elimination goal? And and, 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 This this may be an ignorant ignorant question, but I know that a lot of diseases happen in these low-resource countries. But if a given country, let's say Bangladesh, has a certain problem, a certain infectious disease problem, why can't it at least look to a country where that's not a problem or a problem, a country that solved it, say, you know, hey, what did you guys do? And then implement that in their own country. Why don't they have scholarships and have, you know, resources made available even somewhat so that they can grow their own, you know, group of scientists or train them to help solve a given problem? Why do these things just seem to not be solved? It doesn't make sense, especially when maybe other countries would have solved them. Yes, uh, this is a good question. But as I said, um, uh, if I if I just read out the list of the countries that have not eliminated, and this is mainly uh, the big challenge is mainly because of wars, conflicts, and politically vulnerable environment that these countries. Are. So uh, the list that I have, you know, these countries include Afghanistan, Angola, Central African Republic, Chad, Congo, Guinea, Mali, Nigeria, Pakistan, Papua New Guinea, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, and Yemen, and India is one example here, which uh, which is the largest South, which is one of the largest South Asian countries that has achieved the elimination goal in 2015. Whereas in Kenya, uh, which became one of the last uh, uh, countries in 2018, that has declared itself free of maternal and neonatal tetanus. And by the way, I mean the vaccination is one of the most important thing, and it's it's a strong it needs a strong political will by these countries, and especially Pakistan and Nigeria among these countries, they have a they have an infrastructure. It's not that like they don't have any infrastructure. That might not be a perfect infrastructure, but they need to have a political will to eliminate this uh, this scrooge. But then again, I mean, it's a question of vaccinations, and nowadays I think people are so much hesitant of vaccines, but. Again, there, there can be some innovative strategies. For example, uh, um, my study uh, on, on tetanus pointed out that in the context of uh, resource-poor settings in low-income countries with uh, poor coverage of tetanus toxide immunization, the use of clean delivery kits, it's also uh, some, some places you call it clean birth kits, they seem to be an effective strategy for reducing this uh, neonatal infection. So in, in countries where you have healthcare facilities that are not well equipped and stopped and, and, and the, the, the staff, the hospitalist staff or the healthcare facilities staff is not continuously trained. So my study recommended that the CDK, clean delivery kit, uh, if you use these, 
These, first of all, it's very inexpensive and cost-effective inter intervention for reducing neonatal mortality. And the price of these kits in most cases is less than US dollar, uh, less than one US dollar. So, and, and you might ask me what is in those kits that is so effective in reducing uh, these infections? Well, the contents of these kits include all those things that are important for uh, for clean, uh, for six cleans that are recommended that that are recommended by uh, WHO, and these kits include uh, 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 these six cleans are like uh, clean delivery surface, clean hands and clean perineum, clean cord cutting instrument, clean uh, cord ties, and clean cord care. And the contents that you that would ensure these six cleans are simple: plastic sheet for clean delivery surface. Soap for clean hands and perineum, uh, a sterilized blade for clean cord cutting, and then a sterilized cord ties for clean cord tying, and God's spirit, spirit for uh, clean cord care. That's it. And India uh, is, is, is a very good example here. In 2015, it declared itself free of neonatal deadness. And one of the reasons in achieving these goals is the use of clean delivery kits. And uh, recently, I've writ written a, a situation analysis of this uh, infection as part of my diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene program here at uh, National School of Tropical Medicine in Baylor. So uh, there needs to be a strong political will in actually implementing these, these uh, prevention strategies. And I guess with something like that, with a kit that's a dollar or less than a dollar, that makes it accessible to pretty much every nation on earth. So, yeah, it makes accessible in the sense to uh, accessible to all those delivery attendants who are not trained enough as medical doctors, because 80% of the deliveries in most of the rural areas in low resource countries, they uh, these deliveries happen at home or at a place where these traditional birth attendants facilitate in delivering. So if you give these kids to these women who are delivering the babies, that could be one innovative way of bringing down the uh, this infection. So, uh, and besides, it's if you are, uh, India has been able to vaccinate and then use these delivery kits. So it was kind of like a, a very effective means of uh, bringing down this infection. Yeah, that's excellent. That's a good example of uh, how there's really no excuse once the, once things are at that point. Yeah, know, and, you gave an example, and you gave an example of Bangladesh. It has been able to uh, eliminate this infection as well. So there are so many success stories as well. But then, as I uh, uh, as I told you about this list of countries, you can well, well imagine that these countries are facing problems in terms of wars and um, so much of uh, political problems in their own countries. So I can understand that some of the countries uh, are facing difficult problems, but some countries do have vibrant infrastructure, if not perfect. So is there a list kept of the, um, the conditions that affect the most people negatively you know, around the world still? And you know, are these countries aware of them? And, uh, you know, are there people that are tasked to work on this hit list? You know, and, and, and if so, what's on, the, what's on the top of the list? Like, what are the yes, top three scourges? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, when I started writing my uh, master thesis on this topic, uh, the goal of elimination was 2005. And then, uh, of course, we could not uh, achieve that goal. And that goal was set out by WHO and other agencies. And then we had this uh, elimination goal 
in 2015. Uh, we didn't, some of these countries didn't achieve this. And well, some countries did achieve the elimination target. Then we have now 2020 and 2020 is the deadline for eliminating this infection. But I'm not sure uh, that this would be possible now because of the pandemic. And that is where uh, the pandemic has affected. Uh, this could be an example of pandemic affecting all the other neglected infectious diseases. But traditionally, what are the, the top three, the worst three? Is it malaria? Is it tuberculosis? Like right now in 2020, what are the, the top three offenders in terms of infectious disease worldwide? Well, of course, malaria, Zika, and Ebola, these are uh, all those infectious diseases that happen as outbreaks. But uh, I haven't studied these infections. I only studied them uh, during my coursework. But for me, uh, the uh, like uh, infections like uh, human papilloma virus, HPV, hepatitis B and C, these are kind of like uh, uh, main public health issues in a lot of countries. And these are also the infections that are associated with cancer. That is one of the reasons why I am a CPERT fellow as you introduced me, Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas. Uh, I have been looking at the associations of HPV and cervical cancer, uh, hepatitis and uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, and then helicobacter infections and GI cancers. That's my recent interest. And I would tell you, like, when after I finished uh, my degrees in epidemiology, in medicine and epidemiology, I w started working as a faculty. And my main job was to establish this uh, cancer tissue biobank. And during this time, I got this uh, fellowship opportunity in infections and cancer epidemiology, all those uh, infections that are associated with cancer. And this was, this fellowship was carried out at the International Agency for Research in Cancer, which is based in Lyon in France. And I worked under an amazing mentor, uh, Professor Silvia Franceschi. And I became a local principal investigator who carried out this uh, large population-based uh, prevalence study of HPV among healthy women. And where we did a census of about 10,000 women, we identified eligible women, and then we examined those women, and we carried out pap smears and liquid-based cytology for HPV DNA. And this was carried out in one of the largest slum areas in, in, in Karachi in Pakistan. It's known as Orangi. And Karachi is actually about 25 million, I think. The slum was about 2 million population was living in that slum. And again, our collaboration was, was with a very famous gynecologist back there, uh, Dr. Sher Shah Sayed, who in fact is one of the few male gynecologists in Pakistan, and he's also a prominent human rights activist. So just to uh, point out that at that time, why H first of all, why, why we wanted to do a population-based survey of HPV? Uh, well, at that time, there was no data on the population prevalence of human papilloma virus, this infection, in predominantly Muslim countries. So you didn't have, you don't have the data uh, from, uh, we didn't have the data from uh, starting from Morocco, Algeria, going on from to Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, no data on HPV from some of the Islamic countries. So that became an important uh, task for us. So because these, this data was essential to assess the potential relevance of HPV vaccination and uh, it was important to identify any changes uh, in risk, especially occurring in younger generation. So 
uh, with my incredible, incredible colleagues and with the help of midwives, we trained those uh, for these population-based study. We trained midwives. Uh, we collected cervical specimen from about 900 married women. Uh, we took married women only, not unmarried, because that would have created so much problem if we did. Even though so many unmarried women came to uh, came for uh, examination, but we didn't do that. And this was from general population. Uh, in that slum area actually represented uh, different ethnic groups uh, that could be generalizable to the whole of the country. And we collected some about 100 uh, uh, samples of invasive cervical cancer. And interestingly, you might be interested in knowing what the results of the survey was. Well, yeah. first of all, uh, HPV is a problem in developed countries, definitely. It's a problem in low-resource countries as well, such as China, in, in, in India, in uh, in uh, Mongolia, in Sri Lanka, in China, everywhere it's a problem. But the prevalence of HPV in our study from Pakistan came out to be low. It was 2.8% uh, with no evidence of higher HPV prevalence in younger women. Uh, and this was kind of like uh, surprising in the sense because India already had, uh, from some of the surveys, they had a prevalence of 10%. And anything that is more than 5 or 7%, I consider it as a public health problem. And in Mongolia, you have 30%. In Guinea, you have almost 50% of prevalence uh, in, the, in, in surveys that were carried out in those countries. But then after Pakistan, Iran presented its results. And that was 7%, I think. And it was 5% in Algeria. So, I mean, it, it still is a problem. Uh, even in those, uh, even in, in countries where we think that the prevalence would be low. In our population, it was low, but HPV positivity was associated with women's lifetime number of sexual partners. And particularly, it was associated with the age difference between these spouses as well. So if you have a younger wife and an older husband or, or the other way around, and uh, Husband characteristics such as extramarital sexual relationships and regular absence from home was also very important. And there were two types of HPV, 16 and 18, that accounted for 24 and 88% of HPV positive women from this population. And this was all about, uh, as I said, the population-based surveys and study on HPV and cervical cancer. And then we had hepatitis. I also carried out some a very large pooled analysis on uh, the worldwide variations in hepatitis associated with hepatocellular carcinoma. This was also a project that I'd done, I did in France, but uh, it was interesting because we collected information about uh, different countries and we found that a, product, a, a predominance of hepatitis B was found in hepatocellular carcinoma from most Asian, African, Latin American countries. But hepatitis C, it predominated in Japan, Pakistan, Mongolia, and Egypt. And it was found more often, hepatitis C was found more often than hepatitis B virus in Europe and United States. So my, uh, this, this work was further extended by the colleagues in France. And then based on this work on, uh, and these were all hepatocellular carcinoma cases. So we looking at the patients of hepatocellular carcinoma, and we were looking at the prevalence of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, co-infection with both hepatitis B and C and some other uh, factors. And based on that HCC uh, study, uh, I was awarded a small grant to start up the project uh, back in Pakistan. And uh, the work that I have done on hepatitis and hepatocellular carcinoma, I think I have more than 1,000 citations now, and these are continuously being cited in 
peer-reviewed journals, books, and uh, and scientific proceedings. Wow. And now I'm getting a, a good feel of what epidemiology is. Here you talk about hepatitis B and C and, you know, human papillomavirus, et cetera. It's interesting. Yeah, and all, these, about, um, yeah, and all these infectious diseases so much very... Uh, important, relevant to all these uh, countries, low resource countries and even high resource countries. Well, what uh, what works when you have a problem in a given country or a given set of countries, whether it's low resource or not, what have you seen works and what have you seen doesn't work when, you know, coming up against some kind of disease? What have countries yeah. done that, that is successful? What, what has failed and why in your observation? Yeah, to be honest, these are, well, vaccines are important first. The other thing that we need to take care of is uh, are the uh, behavioral problems. For example, for hepatitis B and C, we can uh, we can make the public aware of uh, of uh, harmful behavior, harmful practices that could uh, cause hepatitis and ultimately uh, the liver cancer. And for HPV, we I mean it's also amazing to see that. When I started work on HPV and several other people who were working before me, and uh, we were all doing these these surveys in different countries. So, all in all, at in France, uh, our group w- was working on these surveys in 24 different countries, almost 20 different countries. And it, it's amazing that we finished those surveys, we compared those prevalence rates, and then we uh, we had the vaccine for HPV. But it's a little bit of a problem with the vaccine uh, in the sense that we now need to have this vaccine accessible in uh, low resource countries as well. Because uh, I don't know what the price right now is uh, in, in these uh, low resource uh, regions. But at the time when I finished my study, I think the price was excruciatingly very expensive in, in Pakistan. I think it was 28,000 rupees uh, back there, which kind of like you can't afford that. It's not even a monthly salary for some people, for, for people from low socioeconomic strata of the society. So uh, I think uh, behavioral changes uh, along with vaccines and the education of the masses, that is very important for uh, the control of these infectious diseases. And HPV is a sexually transmitted uh, infection. So of course, uh, you have to modify your behavior at many levels. And for hepatitis, you have, uh, you have injection drug users. And that is, again, uh, something that can be modified. Uh, vaccines work to an ex- extent, but you can't, put, uh, you can't uh, control all of the infections or diseases through vaccines. Uh, these are important, but uh, behavioral modification is uh, is is crucial as well. Well, very good. So, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work, and um, you know, in regards to what you're working on right now and going forward, how can they uh, find out more? Uh, well, first of all, we have an excellent uh, section of epidemiology and population sciences in our department of medicine, and uh, there are other uh, institutes where you have excellent. Uh, departments of epidemiology. So if anyone is interesting, uh, if, in, if anyone is interested, they can, uh, they can contact these uh, excellent people who are working there. So my work is like, uh, as I said, uh, very focused uh, these days on infections, on infections, infections-associated cancers. 
And uh, these days I'm also trying to come up with the idea of working on uh, gallbladder cancer. Now, uh, gallbladder cancer is not a very common cancer. It's a rare cancer. But again, uh, when I was working back in Pakistan, I realized with colleagues of mine that gallbladder cancer is a problem in, in that particular part of the world. And it's not only, and it was not a problem in the whole of the country, but it was, it was a problem in, in, in Karachi, the, the south port city of the country. And then I found out that it's a problem in uh, north of India. All those northern states in India, they have a high incidence of gallbladder cancer. And then again, in Karachi, uh, which is based on the immigrants from north of India, and then we found that there is a high uh, incidence in, uh, in, in, in Indian and Pakistani population living in uh, United Kingdom and in U.S. as well. Uh, in U.S. we have, uh, we have uh, I think in, in, in U.S. We, have, we might have this problem in, uh, in Native Americans. In Chile, it's a problem. So uh, I'm trying to come up uh, with the idea that uh, since gallbladder cancer is rare, and whenever you have, and gallbladder cancer usually happens when you have silent stones inside your gallbladder that develops over a period of time. And if you have, if you don't have silent stones, you have symptoms, then the simple procedure that is done is cholecystectomy, which means surgical removal of the gallbladder. So you have lost your gallbladder, so there's no chance you're going to get uh, gallbladder cancer unless you have a metastasis, that is, if the cancer is spread to the other parts of uh, the body. So uh, how can we use, uh, uh, if gallbladder cancer is rare, then at a population level, how can we study gallbladder cancer? So my answer is kind of like, why don't we look for the presence of uh, intestinal metaplasia? And this is kind of like uh, intestinal metaplasia can be used as a surrogate for gallbladder cancer. And uh, because uh, what happens is that uh, these stones in the gallbladder that are associated with a number of changes in gallbladder epithelium, they involve some uh, steps. And these are kind of like a steps, a multi-step progression from inflammation to glandular atrophy, and then intestinal metaplasia, dysplasia, and ultimately gallbladder cancer. It could be a stomach cancer as well. The same process goes on. So if you, if you identify intestinal metaplasia in, in gallbladder tissues, those gallbladders that have been removed during surgeries, if you try to see uh, how many people have intestinal metaplasia, you can actually compare those who become positive for intestinal metaplasia with those who are negative and then you can actually kind of uh, extrapolate that to gallbladder cancer. So uh, back in Pakistan, we found out in our samples of about 300 patients who underwent surgical removal of gallbladder, we found 40% was po were positive for intestinal metaplasia. So it would be very interesting to see that what is the situation here in this part of the world, especially we have uh, uh, a lot of, uh, well, it's, it's, it affects a lot of women, actually. And it would be interesting to see if, uh, if what is the situation in Hispanic population here? What is the situation in uh, the Indian or Pakistani or South Asian uh, population in U.S.? And what is the situation in uh, 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 Native American population? So that would be very interesting to look at because uh, I think, and then there is another thing, uh, the infectious role in gallbladder cancer. 
uh, helicobacter infections. We haven't uh, looked at helicobacter infections in gallbladder tissues. Uh, if, if we have actually, but since in back in Pakistan, we collected so many gallbladder tissues that it would be very interesting to look at the prevalence of helicobacter species. And uh, helicobacter, as you know, it's a very known cause of a stomach cancer, but if we can- uh, Yeah, H. pylori, right? Yeah, H. pylori, but our idea is to uh, look at different species of H. helicobacter. So it's not only H. pylori, there are three or four other species as well. And we need to know which kind of PCR would, uh, would uh, the, the test that through which we can uh, identify these, uh, these, uh, this bacteria, how can we actually identify all the, these types in one go? For example, the PCR that we used for HPV infection, it can detect so many types of HPV, I think 10, 30 types of HPV that you can, uh, you can detect through that, through those PCR. So we need to have some kind of a PCR we would, where we would not only detect H. pylori, the helicobacter pylori, but all the other species of helicobacter as well. So it's, a, it's kind of like a very interesting, to me, it's very interesting a study that we can do here in this population. And just to compare this population with the population in, in Pakistan, India, or Chile. Chile is another country where we have a high incidence. Of, and interestingly, it's also, it's also interesting to see what are the factors that causes gallbladder cancer. And one interesting thing that I found is like, if you, have, if you eat a lot of chilies in your diet, I mean, Chile, the country Chile itself is in the shape of a chili. That's why it's known as Chile. But they eat a lot of chilies. Oh. And I think, I think the population, um, the, uh, the Indian and Pakistani population or the South Asian population, those people who eat a lot of chilies, they have kind of some, some kind of association with gallbladder cancer. So uh, that is something interesting that uh, we found in, in our data from Pakistan. But it would also be interesting to see what are the causes here in, in U.S. population. Well, very good. So you, I can see that you're really passionate about it. There's, there's all these populations and conditions and things to look at. So I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and I know the world appreciates the work that you and your, your cohorts are doing. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.